Due to the graphic nature of this haunted place, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of suicide, alcoholism, drowning, and child death. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. After dinner, Emily found a quiet spot at the end of a long hallway and plopped down in a wicker armchair. As soon as she pulled out her laptop, her phone buzzed. It was a text from her mother. Everyone was playing charades in the hotel lounge. If Emily could just come for a few hours, Grandma would be so pleased. Emily groaned. It was just like her mother to schedule the family beach vacation the week before her dissertation was due and at a historical hotel, no less. Hotel Galvez was charming, with its old furniture and huge Palladian windows. But Emily's Wi-Fi signal was spotty, and every day she struggled to find the time to slip away from her family long enough to work. But she could only blame herself. She had changed the topic of her dissertation and had to rewrite the first 10 pages. Then, the first 50. Now, every hour that passed was an hour closer to her deadline. She felt like she was drowning. Emily was staring at the blinking cursor when she heard splashing from the saltwater pool outside. She frowned and tried to tune out the noise. But then, the splashing got louder. Emily groaned. She should have brought headphones. She leaned into her computer, but then she heard something else. Gasping. Emily sat up. A garbled voice was yelling. Someone was at the pool calling for help. She leapt up and sprinted down the hall, wrenching open the door to the pool. But when she ran to the water's edge, she stopped. The pool was empty. Emily shook her head. Maybe the stress was getting to her. She turned back to the lobby, and her blood went cold. In one of the large Palladian windows looking over the pool was the reflection of a woman. Her hair streamed around her face like seaweed, and her arms struggled against her billowing black dress. She was trying to swim, but there were ropes pulling her down into the shadows. Emily watched in horror as she sank and backed out of the room. Suddenly, she didn't care about her dissertation anymore. The pages, the deadlines, they were meaningless. All she wanted was to get out of that hotel. Welcome to Haunted Places, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Greg Polson. Every Thursday, I take you to the scariest, eeriest, most haunted, real places on Earth. You can find all episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And every Tuesday, make sure to check out Urban Legends. These special episodes of Haunted Places are available exclusively on Spotify. This week, join me on a supernatural journey to the Hotel Galvez, a resort in the coastal port city of Galveston, Texas, We'll hear about the lonely souls that wander the halls of the old hotel and discover why, to this day, it's haunted. 
Coming up, we'll get into the dark history of the Hotel Galvez. Pictured in a postcard from the 1910s, the Hotel Galvez cuts a striking figure against the cloudless blue of a Texas summer sky. A red-tiled roof overhangs walls of white stucco. White palm trees and pink oleanders dot its manicured lawn. It was a gleaming gem in what was once a prosperous town. In the late 19th century, Galveston, Texas was one of the most promising port cities in the United States. It had an opera house, a medical school, and the first electric lights in the state. When most of Texas was a lawless backwater, it seemed like Galveston was on its way to becoming a cultural hub comparable to New York City or New Orleans. That would change in the fall of 1900, when a hurricane of tremendous force swept through the growing city, killing at least 8,000 people. By the time the storm was over, they say the dead were so numerous they had to be dumped out at sea. Days later, corpses were still being washed ashore. Galveston would eventually recover from the catastrophe, and in 1910, the Hotel Galvez would be built on Galveston's beach, a beacon of hope on the site of a former tragedy. But the city would never be the same. That kind of trauma leaves a mark, a spiritual scar that never fades. The bodies of the dead were removed from Galveston's shores, but if the stories are to be believed, their spirits remained. As the rising sun illuminated the beach, Sister Liza began to stir. She coughed and spit out a mouthful of sand. She tried to remember how she got there, but her mind felt fuzzy. Every muscle in her body ached. She sat up and looked around. Four children lay motionless on the beach beside her. A clothesline was tied to the wrist of each child and belted around Liza's waist. It was then that her memories of the hurricane came flooding back. When the rain started, the nuns were already afraid the children might not survive the storm. It had been Sister Mary Catherine's idea to tie the orphans to their waists. That way, they would be able to pull them up if they started to float away. Liza had worried the lions might drag them all down, but there wasn't time to argue. Liza grabbed the child closest to her and rolled her onto her back. It was Victoria, sweet Victoria, who always helped with the dinner dishes. Liza grasped her shoulder and shook. For a moment, Victoria didn't move. Then she started to cough and spewed out a stream of seawater. She sat up and rubbed her eyes. Liza sobbed with relief. The boy next to Victoria began to stir, one by one. John, Carl, and little Polly all sat up. Liza couldn't believe it. Sister Mary Catherine had been right. The children who were tethered to her had made it. Or at least, these ones had. Tears pricked at Liza's eyes as she realized that, when the storm began, there had been five children tied to her waist. She remembered leading the children up onto the roof of the orphanage and telling them to sing a hymn, Queen of the Waves. 
But halfway through, a gust of wind ripped off one of the cables. Debris flew everywhere, and the children screamed. The waves kept coming. Then, Teddy slipped off the roof. She'd been afraid he would drag everyone down with him. She remembered struggling to untie his line. She didn't want to believe it. Had she really done that? Teddy would still be alive if she hadn't. Liza closed her eyes and tried not to think of it. She couldn't. She had four other children to care for. Liza got unsteadily to her feet. The shore was covered in broken boards. Here and there, bodies lay amidst the debris. Liza told the children they were going to play a game. They had to shut their eyes and follow close behind her. The children grabbed the hem of her dress, and Liza scanned the horizon. She spotted something off to the left, a large white building. The glare made it hard to see, but the structure looked surprisingly undamaged. She led the children toward it, and soon she could see it clearly. It was a hotel. Its white stucco walls gleamed in the sunlight, and somehow the palm trees lining its lawn were still standing. It stood like an oasis in the wreckage. Liza had thought they were still close to the orphanage, but now she realized the storm must have taken them several miles away, at least. She'd never seen this place before, but that didn't matter now. She hurried the children inside it. Liza had expected the building to be crowded with survivors, but it appeared empty. She led the children into a handsomely appointed entryway and looked around, hoping to find another adult. Meanwhile, the kids had tired of her game and were beginning to pick her. To the left, a row of wicker chairs stretched down a sun-drenched hall. Liza asked the children to sit, but they weren't listening. She'd never been good at discipline. If Mary Catherine were here, she'd have them sitting quietly in an instant. Liza bit her lip to keep from crying. She wished the other nuns were here. The responsibility of keeping the children safe on her own felt so heavy. But she couldn't break down now. If she did, she'd take the children down with her. No, she needed to find help. Liza begged the children to stay put, then hurried toward the enormous sitting room beyond the entryway. A chill ran up her spine. Where was everyone? She was crossing the empty room when she was startled by the sound of laughter. One of the children must have followed her. This was no time for jokes, Liza shouted. A giggle echoed around the room in reply. Then, Liza's heart stopped. There was a shadowy figure crouched under an end table, and it was laughing. Liza took a step back and heard more giggling. She whipped around and gasped. She was surrounded by blurry, featureless figures. They stood around her in every direction, behind couches and next to the grand piano. A terrifying thought struck her. Maybe there were people here, but they'd been turned into those things. She had to get to the children. Liza sprinted back to the hall, her pulse pounding at her ears. But as she spotted the chairs, her heart sank. The children were gone, replaced by four blurry shapes. Liza screamed. She backed into a corner and curled into a ball. She had failed them. 
Her incompetence had dragged them all down. Liza put her head in her hands and started to sob. Suddenly, she felt a tap on the shoulder. She looked up to see Victoria standing over her. Liza seized her hand and said they had to go home. Victoria furrowed her brow and said this was their home. Liza shook her head. Their home was the orphanage. Victoria smiled sadly. That building was gone. Didn't Liza remember? They'd been on the roof. The building was being torn apart. And then Teddy slipped off. Liza had tried to pull him up, but she'd slipped too. They'd all slipped. Suddenly, Liza did remember. She'd thought about untying Teddy's cord. Her hands even touched the knot, but she couldn't do it. She tried to save him. That was how she fell in, and then they all fell. They all drowned together. A little boy came to stand next to Victoria, and Liza felt tears spring to her eyes. Teddy smiled and told her not to worry. They were home now. She looked around. The shadows were changing. It was as if they were emerging from underwater. For the first time, Liza could see them for what they were. They weren't monsters. They were people. There was Sister Mary Catherine and Paul and Francis. Liza stood up. She took the hands of the two children and smiled. Victoria was right. They were home. Guests at the Hotel Galvez often report hearing the sounds of ghostly children playing in the corridors along the first floor. The hotel's owners believe these phantoms may have something to do with the hurricane that struck Galveston, Texas in the year 1900. The storm hit on September 8th. Citizens were warned that this was approaching from Cuba, but most didn't understand how severe it would be. By the time it reached Texas as a Category 4 hurricane, they were left with no time to evacuate and those in the wooden buildings along the oceanfront were in particular danger. One of these buildings was the St. Mary's Orphan Asylum, home to 93 children. When the 10 nuns running the orphanage realized they couldn't escape the storm, they decided to do whatever they could to save the children. They used clotheslines to tie themselves to the orphans, thinking that the tethers might help keep them afloat. But the plan was a failure. Nearly everyone was dragged under the waves. Only three children escaped. The rest were found days later, washed up on the beach, still tethered to the nuns who had tried to save them. It's rumored that in the chaotic aftermath of the storm, the children were buried in unmarked graves on the future site of the Hotel Galvez. Perhaps this explains the presence of ghostly children in the hotel. Maybe the orphans who never had a home in life finally found one in death. Coming up, we'll meet the Phantom Bride of the Hotel Galvez. The internet. What would we do without it? So much information, so little time. And yet, with all the answers available online, there still lie scores of deep, dark, spooky secrets. Mysteries yet to be solved until now. This isn't clickbait. This is our exclusive new podcast, Internet Urban Legends. I'm Loie, your evidence expert. 
And I'm Eleanor, the self-proclaimed skeptic. Together, we're the gruesome twosome, sleuths in search of the weirdest stories on the web. Every Tuesday, we investigate the internet's creepiest conundrums, covering each conspiracy theory and combing through every clue to separate hoax from haunt. Whether it's the video sure to make you lose your appetite, blank room soup, or every kid's worst nightmare, the terrifying truth behind Disney's deaths, or every parent's worst nightmare, social media's Momo challenge. Each episode of Internet Urban Legends is chock full of disturbing details which are either truly demented or ripe for debunking. And no matter our conclusion, we're sure to be left scared half to death. So won't you join us? Follow our new Spotify original from Parcast, Internet Urban Legends. Listen free and exclusively on Spotify. Now back to the story. Upon its opening in 1911, the Hotel Galvez was declared the Queen of the Gulf, and visitors immediately began flocking to the resort. With 275 private rooms, a wine cellar, and its own printing press, the hotel was extraordinarily opulent for its time. Great care was taken in the resort's fixtures and decor. The year it opened, Hotel Monthly declared it the most richly furnished seaside hotel in America. Perhaps the most striking architectural detail is the group of window turrets flanking a tower in the center of the building. The four cupolas, as they're called, are virtually identical. It's the one at the western corner that has gathered the most attention over the years. This spire provides the setting for the hotel's most infamous legend. It's a love story, a ghost story, and above all, a tragedy. Betty proudly wheeled her cleaning cart down the fifth floor hallway. It was her first day on the job, and she was already being entrusted with the fanciest rooms in the hotel. Apparently, President Eisenhower had stayed on this floor once. Her smile faltered as she approached a little door at the end of the hall. It was labeled, No Entry, and was slightly ajar. Betty shook her head. She'd bet five dollars that those snotty kids from room 522 were in there making another mess. Betty ducked under the low doorframe and walked through the room. At the end, there was an opening in the white stone wall, the entrance to the cupola. She yelled for the kids to come out, but there was no response. Betty sighed, got on her hands and knees, and crawled inside. As she reached the other end, she was blinded by the light streaming into the little tower. She was shielding her eyes against the glare, when a soft voice called out to her. Betty squinted into the light. Standing on a ladder above her was a young woman. Sunlight poured in from the window behind her, illuminating her curls like a golden brown halo. Betty was momentarily transfixed. She'd never seen anyone who looked quite so ethereal, like a glass angel who could break at any moment. The girl climbed down and introduced herself as Audra. Betty blinked and asked what she was doing up here. Audra blushed and apologized. She said the maid who usually cleaned the fifth floor had said it was all right for her to use the cupola. She'd like to come up here and watch for her fiancé. He was off with the Coast Guard and she wanted to be able to spot his ship as soon as it sailed over the horizon. Betty sighed. She didn't like when guests broke the rules. 
but there was something about Audra that made it so hard for Betty to tell her no. Betty had once taken her daughters to see a picture about a baby deer with a dead mother and giant brown eyes. Audra made her think of that deer. Betty said she could use the cupola if she made sure to close the door behind her. Audra beamed and thanked her profusely. Betty started to leave, but then she turned around. She told Audra to be cautious climbing that ladder. Audra smiled and promised to be extra careful. She was getting married in a week, and she didn't want to be in a cast when she finally became Mrs. Mark Porter. Betty left the attic and went back to her laundry cart. As the day went on, her mind kept drifting back to Audra. She reminded Betty of her own daughter. Nancy had always been sensitive. Her feelings were all right on the surface. She loved harder and more often than anyone, but she also hurt harder. Betty had a feeling that Audra was the same way. At noon, Betty headed down to the staff room for her lunch break. She took a seat at the scratched fiberglass table. A few minutes later, she was joined by a few other maids, a doorman and a bartender. One of the maids asked her how her first day was going. Betty shrugged. She said it was all right, nothing too interesting. Although she had met an odd woman up in the fifth floor cupola, the others exchanged knowing glances. The bartender sighed and said everyone knew Audra. They liked her when she first checked in. She was sweet, quiet, and a good tipper. Audra had told everyone that her fiancé was a sailor. She'd said that when he came home in a week, they were going to get married. She said it every week for the last four months. The doorman shook his head sadly. She was obviously having some kind of hysterical episode. The bartender added that Audra had once told him the name of the ship her supposed fiancé was on. It was a cutter called the Red Princess. He'd checked in with a friend in the Coast Guard. It sank six months ago. Betty's brow furrowed. She asked if the fiancé was dead. The bartender shrugged and said there was no way to know. Maybe he was just a cat who had taken advantage of an innocent young girl. Or perhaps they really had been engaged and she'd snapped after his boat sank. Or maybe he never existed at all. The employees all shook their heads sadly. Then they moved on to other things. After lunch, Betty's supervisor sent her back to the fifth floor to help a guest. When she knocked on the door of room 501, Betty was surprised to see Audra. She led Betty to a puddle of red wine on the carpet, apologizing for the mess. As Betty got to work, Audra stared at her curiously. Then, out of the blue, she asked Betty if she'd ever come close to drowning. Betty frowned. Audra hurriedly added that she just thought about it a lot since her fiancé was away at sea. Betty said she hadn't and then asked Audra if she'd ever come close to drowning. Audra looked off into the distance. She said she'd once been swimming for a long time without looking up. When she finally stopped, she realized she was far from shore, and the waves were getting big, and she was very tired. She made it back, of course, but she'd never forgotten that feeling. Audra then looked at Betty. She'd felt that same feeling this morning, Audra said. She'd been doing the same thing for so long, looking out that window for Mark's ship. And when she ran into Betty, 
It was like looking up and seeing how far you were from shore. Betty bit her lip. She wanted to say something, but she knew she had to choose her words carefully. So she gently asked Audra why she thought she hadn't heard from her fiancé. Wouldn't he want her to know that he was safe? Audra's eyes gleamed with tears. She told Betty she didn't know. Sometimes she couldn't remember if Mark was even real. If he wasn't, she could stop all this. But as long as there was a chance he was still out there, she had to keep treading water and wait for him. She had to. Betty quietly wiped a tear from her eye. It was what she had suspected. Audra had clearly been suffering for a long time. The girl was lost. And now, here she was, in her way, crying out for help. After her shift, Betty walked to the bus stop in front of the hotel. As she waited for the 7.15, her gaze drifted up to the cupolas. Most of them were dark, but in the west turret, a warm yellow light was gleaming in one of the windows. Betty put a hand to her chest. That poor girl. She was up there all alone, waiting for a man who would never come. Someone ought to do something. If it were her daughter, wouldn't she want someone to do something? That night, Betty tossed and turned, thinking about poor Audra. Finally, she got out of bed and sat down at the kitchen table. She couldn't let her waste away like that. Betty pulled out a portable typewriter and began to write. The next day, Betty arrived before everyone else. She took out the letter she'd written and slipped it discreetly into the guest's mailbox. Then she went about the rest of her day. When she reached the fifth floor hallway, the first thing Betty did was check the door to the turret. It was locked from the outside. Betty smiled. It had worked. She'd gotten through to Audra. But just to be sure, she wanted to pay a visit to room 501. Betty knocked on the door, and a low voice called for her to come in. Betty found Audra laying on a chaise in a peach dressing gown. Her hair was a mess of frizzy curls. Her lipstick was smeared, and Betty could tell she'd been crying. Audra smiled weakly and asked why she'd come. Betty stuttered. She was suddenly wondering if her letter had been the right thing after all. Betty sat down next to Audra and said she just wanted to make sure she was all right. Tears brimmed in Audra's eyes. She said she wasn't, and she wouldn't be ever again. Betty asked what happened. Audra's lower lip trembled as she pulled out a letter and handed it to her. Betty pretended to read it, although she already knew what it said. It was from the Coast Guard, explaining that a body had washed ashore and was positively identified as Mark Porter. Betty put the letter down and offered Audra an embrace. The girl fell into her arms and sobbed for a long time. Betty's heart ached for the girl. She could see how much it was hurting her to confront her delusions, but it had to be done. Betty told Audra she knew this felt awful, but she was free now. She could stop treading water. A pretty girl like her was bound to meet someone else, someone better. Audra pulled away and asked how she could possibly meet someone better. Mark was perfect. Betty nodded. Perhaps, she said. But it seemed like maybe Mark wasn't real. Audra wrinkled her brow. 
Betty hastily added that she just meant he wasn't around. When a man is off at sea, you can pretend he's kinder, handsomer, and smarter than he really is. The only perfect man is one who doesn't exist. Wandra bit her lip and asked if real men couldn't be perfect. Definitely not, Betty said. But real was much better than perfect. Audra nodded thoughtfully. Betty smiled. It looked like she'd gotten through to her. She put her arm around Audra and gave her a squeeze. Audra thanked her. As Betty went back to her cleaning cart, she felt a glow of satisfaction. She'd done a good thing today. Her shift passed quickly. Soon, she was sitting at the bus stop. Betty knew that the light in the tower would be gone tonight, all thanks to her. Betty looked up. The light was not gone. Audra had gone back to the turret. Betty clenched her fists. That girl needed help. She looked up at the window and thought of her daughter. If it was Nancy, wouldn't she want someone to help her? She stood up and marched toward the hotel. She was going to go up there and drag Audra out herself if she had to. Betty took the elevator up to the fifth floor. When she stepped out into the hall, she suddenly felt very cold. She started toward the little door, but before she got there, someone emerged from room 501. It was Audra, wearing that same peach dressing gown. Betty asked how she was feeling. Audra smiled and nodded. Betty took that to mean she felt good. She asked why the light in the turret was on, but Audra just continued to smile. Then she turned to adjust one of the lampshades in the hall and walked past Betty. Betty frowned. Audra's behavior was worrying, but it was a relief to know she wasn't back in the turret. She must have left the light on last night. Betty would turn it off. She swung open the door. The chill there was even worse. As she approached the opening in the wall, Betty heard a rhythmic creaking. She told herself it was the wind, but she couldn't shake the feeling that something was wrong. For a moment, she was afraid to go in. Betty shook her head. She was being silly. She took a deep breath and slipped through the narrow passage. Betty let out a sigh of relief. It was just an empty room. She didn't know why she'd been so worried. Then she went to the light switch and froze. There was that sound again. She looked up slowly toward the ceiling, and her breath caught in her throat. There, hanging from the rafters, was Audra. Betty scrambled out of the turret. She tore across the attic and emerged into the hallway, where she ran straight into a stocky young man in a naval uniform. The man laughed and asked where the fire was. Betty opened her mouth, but no sound came out. The man fixed his glasses and said that actually it was good to run into a staff member. He was looking for room 501. Could she point him in that direction? Betty gasped. She asked why he wanted room 501. The man smiled broadly. That was the room his fiancée was staying in. Maybe they'd met. Her name was Audra. One of the most famous ghosts at the Hotel Galvez is the spirit of a woman named Audra. 
According to the tale, she was engaged to a sailor during the mid-1950s and would often stay at the hotel. There, she spent days awaiting her fiancé's return in the West Turret and always requested room 501 so she could access the little tower. One day, Audra received word that her lover's ship had sunk. She was devastated, but refused to give up hope. She still came to the turret every day, watching for his ship, hoping against hope that he'd come back to her. Sadly, after weeks or months of waiting, Audra's mental state deteriorated. She hung herself from the rafters of the cupola. A few days later, Audra's fiancé sailed into Galveston Harbor. He was alive after all, but Audra was gone. Coming up, more than one kind of demon haunts the guests at the Hotel Galvez. Now back to the story. Of all the spectral phenomena that has been reported in the Hotel Galvez, one of the most fascinating is the appearance of ghosts in photographs taken in and around the hotel. Paranormal investigators refer to the glowing balls that appear in these snapshots as orbs or manifestations of spectral energy. But there is another kind of photograph displayed in the halls of the Hotel Galvez that is far more unsettling. At first, these might seem like ordinary photographs, a boardwalk full of well-dressed vacationers, an empty hallway. But upon closer inspection, one can see figures that don't fit. Strange, almost demonic images invisible to the human eye, but momentarily captured by the lens of a camera. Laura put the top down on her convertible, cracked open a beer, and turned on to Seawall Avenue. Galveston Island seemed like a nice place to vacation. She would have loved to have come here for something other than her sister's wedding. Michelle was one of those people who drank bottled water at home. She ran three miles every day, had never missed a credit card payment, and was exactly two minutes early for everything. Her wedding was going to be a nightmare. Laura pulled up in front of the hotel, shugged the rest of her beer, and then tossed her keys to the valet. The place was nice, very fancy, with palm trees and Adirondack chairs lining the manicured green lawns. It was all very Michelle. Laura felt out of place as soon as she stepped into the mahogany panel lobby and spotted her sister. She was surrounded by her Stepford wife friends. Laura and Michelle shared a tense hug. Then she told Laura to pull up a chair. Laura said she was just going to get a drink first. Michelle pursed her lips and remarked that it was a little early for a drink. Laura ignored her. She had a sneaking suspicion that the cocktails at the hotel would be weak and expensive. She ordered a whiskey sour and learned that she was correct. This was why she picked up a bottle of cheap bourbon on the way here. She waited until the bartender wasn't looking and poured her own booze into the glass. Laura then brought her drink back to the table and pulled up a chair. Michelle's friends introduced themselves and politely asked her what she did. Laura paused, 
She could say she was unemployed, but that was a whole can of worms. She said she worked at a catering company. Oh, that's nice, they said in unison. Laura looked at her drink and was surprised to find she'd finished it. She went up to the bar and ordered another. The bartender gave her a suspicious look before handing her a second whiskey sour. As soon as his back was turned, she topped it off. Laura went back to the lounge where her sister's friends were discussing kitchen renovations. She finished her drink and headed back to the bar. Before she could get the bartender's attention, she felt a hand on her elbow. Laura turned around to find her sister looking like she was about to breathe fire. Michelle told her not to do this, not at her wedding. Laura reminded her that it wasn't her wedding yet. It was actually the first day of her vacation, a week before Michelle's wedding. Michelle took a deep breath. She said she knew that Laura had a drinking problem. Mom and Dad would have wanted her to be sensitive, but she couldn't, not now. This was her week, and if Laura couldn't handle that, then she could leave. Michelle turned around and walked back to her friends. Laura wanted to yell something like, I don't have a problem, you do. But that was exactly the type of thing someone with a problem would say. Instead, she ordered another whiskey sour. The bartender shook his head and said he wasn't stupid. He could see her slipping shots from her purse. He couldn't serve her anymore. Laura pursed her lips. She nodded and pushed a bowl of peanuts off the bar. The room went quiet. Laura held up her hands, said, oops, and walked away, heading back toward the lobby. This was fine. She'd make her own fun. She'd take a tour of the hotel, and with the bourbon in her purse, it would be a very good time. She made her way down a long hallway. Every 10 feet or so, there was something interesting on the walls. A coat of arms or a fancy brass candelabra. Laura stopped to peer at an old photograph of a boardwalk. There was a creepy figure in the foreground. It looked like a lady in a bonnet and shawl. But where her face and hands should have been, there was just black fuzz. Laura swallowed dryly. It was probably just a smudge or a mark. But there was something she didn't like about that picture. She moved on continuing down the hall. Beyond the boardwalk picture, there was another framed photograph. This one of a long hallway not too different from the one she was standing in. Laura wondered why anyone had bothered to frame it. She squinted at the photo. Standing at the end of the hallway was the outline of a translucent man. Laura did not like that at all. She looked away from the photograph and up at the hallway in front of her. That was when she saw it. The picture was of the very same hall she was standing in. Laura's gaze moved down the corridor. Suddenly, her breath caught in her throat. At the end of the hallway was a man. The same translucent man from the photo. He was tall, far taller than a person should be, with long boots and a nearly invisible cane. His neck reached to about six feet before fading away into nothingness. Laura gasped and squeezed her eyes shut. She told herself it wasn't there. When she looked again, 
it was gone. Laura glanced at the bottle in her hand. Obviously, her sister wasn't right about anything, but it was troubling that she was seeing things. She put the bourbon back in her purse and continued down the hall. There was one more photo. It looked almost exactly like the last picture, except that the translucent figure was gone, and there was a man with a bowler hat sitting in one of the chairs. Laura examined the man, looking for any kind of creepy detail she might have missed, but she couldn't see anything. She laughed. She didn't know why she was being so stupid. Then she turned back to the hall. There, sitting in one of the wicker chairs, was a man with a bowler hat. Laura froze as the man stood up and turned toward her. In a low voice, he said that they'd been watching her. Laura took a step back, her eyes wide with terror. The man's lips curled into a terrifying smile. Laura turned and ran. At the end of the hall, there was a door leading outside. She headed straight for it. She needed to get out of this hotel. Laura ran out to the pool and paused to catch her breath. She felt a little better now that she was outside. She must have just needed some air, that was all. She sat down at the edge of the pool and dangled her feet in the water. It looked like she was the only person there. A row of stucco arches reached across the courtyard, and the surrounding palms swayed in the breeze. She gazed at them, catching her breath, when a figure emerged from under one of the archways. Laura's hair stood on end. It was the woman from the photo of the pier. Under her bonnet, where a face should have been, there was nothing but a lump of black wool. The woman shuffled toward her. Laura tried to get up, but she was unsteady on her feet. She slipped and pitched herself right into the water. Laura splashed and flailed and reached out to grab the side of the pool. But as soon as her fingers closed around the tiled edge, she felt something pressed down over her hand. Laura looked up. The man with the bowler hat was looming over her, and his foot was on her fingers. Laura pulled back her hand and shrieked, taking in a mouthful of salt water. She swam frantically for the other side of the pool, but her limbs felt slow and heavy. She was sinking. Laura looked up and saw the man's blurry image. Laura's lungs filled with water, and everything went black. A few minutes later, Laura opened her eyes and coughed up a deluge of salt water. She rolled onto her back and stared up at the concerned face of a gray-haired older man. He asked how she was feeling. Laura coughed and said she was okay. She sat up and leaned against an ivy-covered column. The man offered her a towel and introduced himself as Mark. He said he was lucky he'd found her when he did. She could have drowned. Laura nodded. The man scratched his head. He said he'd almost drowned once. He was a young man in the Coast Guard then. His ship went down in a storm. It was funny, he said. In the Coast Guard, he learned that when you're drowning, you need to conserve energy. Your instinct is to reach out for whatever you can get your hands on. But what you need to do is stop moving so much. Of course, when the waves are crashing over you and your mouth is filling with salt water, well, that's easier said than done. The man shrugged. It was hard to save yourself from drowning. 
Most people couldn't do it on their own. For a moment, they just looked at each other. He asked again if she was okay. Laura nodded. He gazed thoughtfully up at the hotel before adding that it was dangerous to swim alone. Dangerous and awfully lonely. After the man left, Laura sat there for a long time. She was thinking about what he'd said. She thought about the things she'd seen. She'd never had such an elaborate hallucination when she was drinking. Laura shivered. She should apologize to her sister. It was going to be a difficult week, but she could at least try to get through it. She needed to hold on to Michelle. Her sister might be the only one who could keep her afloat. Hanging in the hallways of the Hotel Galvez are some historic photographs from the 1910s. One shows a hallway with a row of chairs. Sitting in one of the chairs is a person in a bowler hat with a blurred face. Next to them is a strange, indecipherable, translucent shape. A shape which has no logical explanation. Unless, of course, you believe in spirits. Another photograph is of a crowd of people strolling along a boardwalk in the early 1900s. In the foreground is a woman in ragged clothes wearing a bonnet. But instead of a face peeking out from beneath it, there's only a clump of black fuzz. The photograph is a startling image. Nestled in among the well-dressed vacationers, this single figure appears out of place. She stands alone, staring out at the ocean perhaps beholding some terrible tragedy invisible to those around her. Of course, the worst tragedy to ever hit Galveston happened 11 years before the hotel opened. After the 1900 hurricane, the city constructed a 17-foot seawall to help keep themselves safe from the yearly storms that battered the island. But for many, it was too late. To this day, that hurricane was the single deadliest natural disaster in the history of the continental US. At least 8,000 lives were lost, many of whom died by drowning, a fate that, according to some, is one of the most horrible ways to die. When a person drowns at sea, it doesn't happen all at once. They bob up and down, taking in one mouthful of water at a time. Finally, they sink below the waves and hold onto their last breath of air for as long as they can. This slow, painful process appears in many of the hotel's ghostly tales. Whether they're orphans lost in a hurricane, or a young woman waiting for a lover who will never return, the ghosts of the Hotel Galvez know how it feels to drown. Thanks again for tuning into Haunted Places. We'll be back on Thursday with a new episode. And don't forget to come back on Tuesday for our Urban Legends series, available only on Spotify. You can find more episodes of Haunted Places and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. I'll see you next time. Haunted Places is a Spotify original from Parcast. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler. Sound design by Kenny Hobbs with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Isabella Way. 
This episode of Haunted Places was written by Zoe and Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Alexandra Garland, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. I'm Greg Polson. <laughs>